0: From the violence in the Middle East to the dysfunction in Congress, the world feels increasingly untethered. Today's guest spent his early career analyzing threats to American security and now is unapologetic in his warnings about the threats to American democracy. He's Tom Nichols this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University.
1: And I'm G. Wayne Miller, also with Salve's Pell Center.
0: And our guest this week is Tom Nichols, Professor Emeritus of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. He's now a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he writes a daily newsletter. Tom, thank you so much for being with us today. Good to be with you, Jim. So, you know, we we are mindful of the fact that we taped this a couple of weeks before broadcast. So events may unfold in the coming weeks uh, in ways that we can't anticipate. But we take a look at the war in Ukraine. We take a look at the crisis in the Middle East. And it just feels like there's a sense of unraveling on a global scale. Um, What do you think is at work here? And are all of these events uh, completely distinct?
2: You know, it's, it's interesting to look at them um, as linked events because I think what you're seeing is a kind of counteroffensive um, of authoritarians and terrorists around the world that um, we lived through a period of thirty years of the expansion of democracy um, after the fall of the <clears throat> fall of the Soviet Union. Now we're in kind of a period of retrenchment where, um, the people who, you know, are, really want the international order turned back, um, and to turn back some of those democratic gains in places, especially like Ukraine, where Putin is simply making war on a neighboring democracy um, out of pure imperialistic nostalgia. Uh, and I think, as well, in the Middle East, you know, you're seeing a an all-out terrorist counteroffensive of the kind that really i mean we keep comparing it to 50 years ago with um the yom kippur war but that that was a military attack from neighboring states this is really an all-out kind of terrorist offensive meant to make israel an unlivable place um for israelis so i i while i don't think it's you know a huge network of connected it's not specter or, or something, but on the other hand, there is a kind of drift and a tide in international affairs, where um, I think the authoritarians are making their move, and we've seen that as well in the democracies, even at the ballot box. So it's it's a it's a scary time.
0: So you don't put any stock in. I see some speculation with folks. I, I think almost hoping or wishing that somehow another Moscow is uh, is or Beijing or somehow controlling uh, Tehran, which is controlling Hamas. It's not that coordinated is what I hear you saying.
2: Um, I don't think it's that coordinated, but I don't think, but I think they've been on the phone to each other. Um, you know, I think they keep, they all stay in the loop. China's an interesting exception here. The Chinese have have always wisely found a way to kind of circumnavigate or to sidestep um, a lot of these <clears throat> problems in, in the West. Which they keep at arm's length because that preserves their freedom of movement in um, the uh, Indo-Pacific region. But um, you know, is it a big coordinated? Um, you know, you attack here, I'll attack there. Uh, anybody watching the war in Ukraine can tell you the Kremlin isn't nearly that organized. But but I but they are you know keeping in touch with each other um, and they're supplying each other. North Korea, Iran, China,
0: Russia—they're um, they're making deals. You know, you, you described the Hamas attack as a, as a massive terrorist operation, which it certainly was. I think a lot of people were surprised by the pure barbarity uh, of the of some of the things that we saw Hamas do to innocent victims. Um, do you have any explanation about that evolution in terrorist tactics?
2: Well, actually, if you look at the history of terrorism, um, you'll see that terrorists. <clears throat> excuse me, the terrorists will often do um, astoundingly ghastly things in an attempt to to draw the foul from the targeted nation. They want their enemies to um, react as brutally and as harshly as possible because they want to uh, get them to overextend, they want them to lose um, credibility among their allies They want to bring them down to the level of the terrorists themselves to say, see what we're fighting. The people we're fighting are no better than we are and perhaps worse. Um, You see this throughout the history of terrorism. You saw it after 9-11, where um, Al-Qaeda was hoping that the United States, um, what we did was bad enough, you know, getting ourselves mired into two different wars, but what bin laden was apparently hoping what happened is the united states would completely go nuts start bombing every country in the middle east and central asia bring down the regime in pakistan bring down the regime in saudi arabia so this is actually an old tactic now it's um we're shocked because we see it in more detail in 2023 because of the nature of interconnected media but drawing the foul Trying to provoke your opponents into a, into barbarity and overreaction is actually an, it's it's almost like page one
1: out of the, the terrorist playbook. So, Tom, bearing in mind again that we're taping this in early November, but how do you think the Biden administration overall is doing in managing what is clearly an international crisis?
2: I, I think that the Biden administration has done a remarkable job handling multiple international crises. Um, the war in Ukraine, I think, is a, a remarkable, I, I think it's a, this was just the right time to have the former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in the White House. Um, but I think it's been a remarkable ability to draw NATO together, to get the Europeans uh, to contribute to this effort and to take risks. In fact, some some of the Europeans, um, want to be take even bigger risks than the United States is willing to take. I mean, this is normally the United States is charging in and saying, you know, come, come with us, we've got to do this thing. And the, the Europeans are now the one, at least some of the Europeans are the ones who are saying, you know, let's let's really get into this scrum and and help the Europeans. And the United States ha- is holding together a fractious coalition I mean, NATO is twice the size, almost twice the size it was at the end of the Cold War. And then to balance that with. Um, a Middle Eastern crisis in which one of our allies wants to unleash hell, understandably, much as we did after 9-11, and trying to encourage restraint there. And I think it's just been a remarkable foreign policy performance, um, you know, in every way on these crises.
0: Yeah, Tom, I I think we all on some level uh, recognize the Israeli and, and respect the Israeli impulse uh, to seek justice uh, in the aftermath of, of what happened on October 7th. There is a growing sentiment in a lot of places around the world, though, uh, to your point, that uh, the Israeli response has become the source of outrage rather than the initial terrorist attack. Um, how, has, how has Israel's response uh, uh, r- risen to the moment, has it risen to the moment, uh, and what do you think the, how do you think this all plays out uh, in the weeks and months to come?
2: I think a country, you know, again, as
0: an American
2: um, who lived through 9-11, I, I'm deeply sympathetic. Um, and, you know, turning the story into a story about Israel's reaction, as I, I'll say again, is kind of page one out of the terrorist playbook um, to get the attention off of what the terrorists have done and to shift it over onto the um onto the reaction from the targeted regime. We went through this after 9-11. Are, you know, are we, you know, what kind of operations are we conducting in Afghanistan? Are we bombing too much? Are we doing too little? Are we Are we, Are we? we violating laws of war by having guys on horseback, um, you know, dressed in local garb and so on? Um, I don't have enough I- vision inside the Israeli. T- I don't know what the Israelis know. Um, I think one thing that is difficult for Western audiences or for non Israeli audiences to to comprehend outside of this situation is that one thing terrorists do is to bait uh, their opponents into attacking civilian targets by using those civilian institutions, hospitals, ambulances and so on as bases for their actions. Now it doesn't really help much to say that under international law the onus for that rests with the terrorists. It rests, Jim. You know you've taught international affairs for years. You know that when uh, one of the parties removes the the innocence of a civilian target by militarizing it, that that burden rests with them. That doesn't help much when there's footage of a burning ambulance. Um, so. I think one of the things that's really struck me is not so much about Israel's reaction, which so far seems to be um, what I would have expected it to be, and you know probably what most countries would do under these circumstances, but rather how cleverly Hamas has turned this, um, used video and the Internet um, to turn this into a story about Israel rather than about a terrorist attack
1: on Israel. So, Tom, uh, meanwhile... We have another war continuing. It it will be uh, early next year, two years since Russia invaded Ukraine. What is your assessment of that war now? And then we can get into uh, Vladimir Putin's role in it and and Putin himself. And and we know, of course, that Putin is an area of expertise of yours.
2: I was one of the people two years ago who said, you know, if the Russians execute this competently, um, this could be over in a week um and i was surprised by many things including the i i think um i, I underestimated the ukrainian will to resist f- for sure i think a lot of us did but i think the thing few of us could have counted on was how astoundingly incompetent the russian military is Um and that's been the story of the past two years that this country three times the size of Ukraine, attacking on three axes, multiple fronts, um, and is simply just throwing away the lives of tens of thousands of, of its own um, young men for some idea, some scheme that was probably cooked up in a bunker during COVID. Um, So at this point, I know people are tempted to call the war a stalemate. It's a, It's a failure. It's a Russian loss. I mean, remember, the Russian goal was the lightning capture of Kiev and subjugation of the whole country within a few weeks. That that ship has sailed. That's just not going to happen. And the Ukrainians are regaining territory slowly. So this isn't quite, um, you know, 1914 with guys in trenches just stuck on a very static line. Ukrainians have carried out some very nimble operations, recaptured territory. Um, And the Russians just keep having to plow um, men and material and money uh, into a war that I I, as an as an expert, former expert on Russia, I find myself asking what they think is going to happen, um, how they think this ends. Uh, because they're not interested in peace. I think the people, another thing that we should think about two years into this war is how many people keep talking about how Ukraine should ex- accept a peace deal. There is no peace deal. The Russians aren't interested in this. Um, the the Russian peace deal is surrender completely and let us, you know, march through your streets. Um, so I, I, I don't know where the Russians are going with this other than that they've kind of, you know, picked up this porcupine and, and they don't know what to do with it now. And they're just going to, I think, I think Putin at this point just thinks that, it, you know, every few months he's got to get a bigger hammer
1: and consign more of his own young
2: men to death.
1: So, what does this portend for the future of, of Putin as the dictator of Russia?
2: You know, I thought Putin was shaken during the the coup uh, or, or the putsch or the I don't even know what to call it when Prigozhin, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and the Wagner guys start to march toward Moscow. Um, there, it, it looks like it was some kind of inside military deal to shake up Putin and to push the defense minister and the the, the uh, chief of the general staff out of the way. That's all. That's gone. Um, the guys involved have, you know, um, uh, are relaxing. They're taking a break. They're spending more time with their families <laughs> in America. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, I think, you know, Putin's um, p- blowing Purgosian out of the sky um, and, and executing him very publicly was a message from Putin to the rest of the Russian elite. That i'm i'm still in charge on the other hand his power is not unlimited his attempts to keep just drafting and drafting and drafting keep keep getting scaled down and pushed back so um you know i i thought about a year ago on victory day he might declare some kind of general mobilization but clearly he's trying to observe some kind of deal with the russian elites and with russian society that, you know, I promised you this war wasn't going to really touch you. I promised you a quick victory. So it shows you the limits on his power that he's trying to balance these two things of I'm not giving up. I, we haven't lost victory, all that, you know, propaganda that you're seeing on Russian TV. But on the other hand, um, no, I can't just declare, a, you know, martial law and put a million men into the army. Um, or, or do something even worse, you know, including something like nuclear weapons. He, he's, he's stuck. Um, so he's in power, but he's now stuck with this war that he, he doesn't, I, I think he doesn't really know how to get out of at this point.
0: Yeah, Tom, you spent time working on Capitol Hill. Uh, the debate about whether or not to continue funding uh, Ukraine's war effort seems to be mired in some form of, 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 of political squabble, particularly in the House of Representatives. Uh, what does that kind of debate in that at this particular moment in the course of this war uh, do to American leadership uh, in in a place like Ukraine, but globally, more generally?
2: It's such an important question, Jim. You know, um, what it really shows is that the Republican Party has become just an utterly unserious and performative party, um, that there there's no real principle involved here that it's almost a kind of oppositional defiance disorder well if joe biden wants this and a lot of other folks um agree with it then we have to put a wedge between joe biden and the public and be against it um you know it's that old marx brothers song right whatever it is i'm against it mm-hmm. um and there's no real solution here uh, and there's no real sense that any of these republicans um who the republicans who are opposing this understand this issue care about it um really understand it beyond its influence on domestic politics and i think that sends a horrific message to the rest of the world because it says it it tells these authoritarian regimes you can play the game of dividing americans well you it- can you, you can push that button and, and divide Americans over something that normally they would be pretty much on the same page about.
0: Well, and you know, to that end, you, you, you mentioned it, uh, you're a recovering Sovietologist. You understand the history of Russia's use of political warfare and disinformation to sow divisions inside American and Western publics. We know what happened in 2016. Do you believe Russia will try to take a hand in the 2024 campaign? I don't think they have to. I think we're doing it to ourselves. Um, you
2: know, why does Russia need to get involved in more active measures uh, when, you know, when Fox and Newsmax exist? Um, you know, we're we're practically running a psychological operation on ourselves at this point. Um, again, based not in any kind of theory of government or deeply rooted policy differences, But again in this kind of childish sort of whatever the other team wants um i i have to be against now with that said of course the russians will do everything they can to help that process along but one of the interesting things here is that since um elon musk more or less destroyed twitter and facebook has created this kind of gigantic thing called threads um, that actually complicates the problems for russians seeking to influence social media because now there's multiple social medias and you know the russians it was back in the old days it was easy you went on twitter you put a thousand bots out there you know and you push your message that way um so i think they they'll be interested in it but i actually think that in some in some ways the um the social media landscape in 2024 is actually harder for the bad guys to navigate
0: We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we know how lucky we are to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center, at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at JMLutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Tom Nichols. For 25 years, Tom was a professor of national security affairs at the Naval War College, and since he retired, he's been a staff writer for The Atlantic, sharing daily thoughts on developments in Washington and around the world, as well as insights into American popular culture. If you're not already following Tom on Twitter, this or X as it's now known, he's at Radio Free Tom.
1: So Tom, you, <laughs> we're talking about the 2024 election and as of now, it looks like it will be a rematch between uh, Joe Biden and uh, the former president. Um, Donald Trump, can you give us sort of an overview of what you expect to happen during the election? There's so many things that could happen with Donald Trump facing so many charges. Anyway, give us your sort of overview where we stand right now.
2: First thing I think is Donald Trump's going to be the nominee. The Republicans want him. Um, You know, this we keep talking about the Nikki Haley surge. Um, Yes, she's surging to, you know, a a 15 point tie with Ron DeSantis and together, DeSantis and Haley are, you know, 60 point uh, running 30 points back from from Trump. Um, The Republican Party has become a cult of personality. And so they don't care if he's they they, I think it's true that when he's indicted, his supporters think that's um, awesome. That's a sign that he's aggravating the right people. So on the Republican side, um, that and even if he, now, now there is a possibility is if he's convicted or um, he has some remarkable flame out in public, I, I don't know. I mean, he's so unpredictable and he's such a emotionally disordered person that it's that it's hard to know. Um, but I think even the Republicans are not going to abandon him. If he's convicted, that would affect how independents and, and swing voters view him and, I, and I'll, before i get to the democrats i'll just say i find it astonishing that there are still swing voters in a country where donald trump has told us exactly what he intends to do in 2024 you know violate the constitution use the army against american citizens um prosecute his enemies politicize the justice department but um but unfortunately that's the time we live in um on the democratic side i i, I find it again kind of remarkable that um joe biden can't catch a break no matter what he does i mean the economy is booming um we talked about his foreign policy um and yet you know there's all this hemming and hawing and so what i expect is that voters will come home in a year and that um you will get large turnouts in all of the places, you know, where in blue states and red states where the, the loyalists will come home to their parties. I think in the swing states, um, I, I'm still optimistic because, especially now we're doing this in early November, we've seen the results. Um, the Virginia House was flipped by Democrats. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court added a Democrat to its majority there, which actually matters because they would be the ones to hear challenges in 2024. Ohio has um, guaranteed abortion rights in its constitution, which adds to red states like Kansas and Montana. So, you know, I think all of the indicators are the right way. I think the problem is that the voters still think Joe Biden just sounds old. Right. When he talks, he just sounds like an old guy. Um, But again, if his opponent is a guy who, when he talks, sounds completely unhinged, I think voters will kind of sort this out it, it, when it comes closer to November of
0: 24. Tom, am, am I just uh, becoming an old curmudgeon? Uh, you know, you, you and I. Welcome to the club, Jim. Well, <laughs> it, I'm yeah. glad to be in the club with you, right? It's, um, it is a good club, though. <laughs> it, you know, I, 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 hard, I, I think back just, you know, in the last 15 years to campaigns between uh, Obama and McCain, uh, between Kerry and Bush. Uh, between Gore and Bush where there was uh, serious substantive policy discrepancies uh, that sort of characterized the two parties, but there was a seriousness about governing that both parties offered the American public. I might be sounding very partisan in saying this, but I don't see that same seriousness about governing from the expected standard bearer of of, of the party. You've written about some of the dangers that Trump might pose in a second administration. And you made reference to it here, but specifically, what are you worried about?
2: Well, let me back up for a moment and say um, that this problem of seriousness um, is really heartbreaking and it doesn't make you a curmudgeon to notice it. We live in a post-policy world. That's part of the problem is that we live in a celebrity-driven, and I'm gonna both sides this just a little bit. I know that some folks itch a bit, Um, but you know, when, when I see, um, and talk to, not just in the social media, I mean, I taught, I, I stepped down, um, after 18 years teaching summers and nights at Harvard, and I taught for 10 years at Dartmouth and Georgetown. Um, you know, when I hear young people saying things like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do in November if Biden doesn't forgive student loans, you know, or I don't like Biden's position on Israel, so I may set out the election that there's a. There's a fundamental unseriousness about that throughout the electorate because we, as Americans, have come to expect a kind of transactionalism. We we vote and we get things that we want, and we don't co- we don't cooperate, we don't compromise. The Republicans ha- have gone a, a, a million light years beyond this and basically say now we don't even care about po- you know we're we're fiscal hawks. Well, Trump spends a million do- you know bazillion dollars out of the- and raises the devil. okay we don't care about fiscal discipline anymore. Um, it's it's really about social resentment and tribalism. Um, so uh, I think, you know, that is the is the bigger problem that we just can't seem to get our arms around this notion that we actually have to govern. And I miss, I miss those elections too, Jim, I, I often say to my friends, you know, further to the left, I can't wait to get back to having arg- arguments about marginal tax rates. I want to have really boring arguments. <laughs> uh, about, about marginal tax rates. But um, unfortunately, that's just not the world uh, we're, we're living in.
0: Hey, Tom, uh, we've only got about 40 seconds left here. I- I'm curious, you know, you are still one of the great social media follows. Uh, and uh, your audience on, uh, on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, would certainly agree. I'm curious, though, have you considered switching platforms with the recent changes to X and... If not what keeps you where you are um I, I use multiple platforms now I'm on I'm Radio Free Tom on
2: blue Sky on threads on spoutable um, I mostly use blue sky threads and and Twitter and, and Twitter I think is sort of uh, petering out and I did want to um, I didn't want to duck your last question Jim and I'll do it in 10 seconds. what I worry about if Trump is reelected yeah. is that he will turn the United States into an authoritarian government. Um, trash Constitution, turn the Justice Department into a police force that he uses against his enemies, and turn the U.S. military into a Praetorian guard. I mean, I I think we will be um, we will lose our democracy if Donald Trump gains the White House again. So that's the simplest answer about what I'm worried about. Uh,
0: Tom Nichols, that is a sobering point to leave it on. Yeah, people can find you as you mentioned on those social media platforms, but also in The Atlantic. Thank you so much for being with us. That is all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on social media or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.